In today's episode, we're going to cover all topics related to artificial intelligence, AI. We're going to start with a high-level debate that's playing out amongst two of America's biggest billionaires, Mark Andreessen and Bill Gates, who have both competing theories in a way on whether AI is good for us or bad for us. Then we're going to talk about AI copyright. Congress right now is just looking at the whole industry to say whether they want to regulate it or not. There's also high-profile litigation going through our court system about the use of AI and copyrighted works. We're going to just parse through all that and say like, hey, where are we today? And is this technology infringing on people's rights to their materials? And then we're going to go to the healthcare system and say, well, is AI actually going to help us live longer? And then we'll close out by talking about AI's relationship with search and how rapidly developing technologies from companies like Google are actually going to change the way that we get information. So this is a big episode. We got a lot of topics to cover. All of this on today's episode of The Lost Debate Show, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, how is it out there in your garage in Nantucket? It is good. How is it in Rome? A bunch of relatable content from us. (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, Rome... It's like, I think there's like a historic heat wave going on right now, which I have not experienced enough yet because I just got here. But yeah, this is the final leg of my trip. I head back to the States on Sunday, but I'm looking forward. I've not really explored Rome enough. So if you're listeners out there, if you catch me, you know, send me a message on my DMs somewhere, whatever, whatever you use at Ravi M. Gupta, if you got good recommendations for restaurants and whatnot in Rome, because I got a couple of days here to explore. I did the forum. Um, I was there a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, I guess now. And that was the only time that I've ever used my Latin, my years of Latin class. I could read the monuments. I've done the monuments so. before. So I, I think I'm going to skip those this time. But I would love to just like get the feel of like like more like less touristy neighborhoods, like the neighborhood I'm staying in is less touristy. So we'll see. Um, so, you know, just generally positive experience in Italy as usual. It seems like there are fewer tourists this year than last year from what I can gather from talking to people who work in the industry who basically said like the COVID boom from last year was like unprecedented and things have kind of simmered down this year, um, which is kind of a bummer for them. But I also think their theory is that Americans have also diversified in their travel interests and are now going to places like Portugal and Croatia and other places that are, you know, like uh, more novel and, you know, there's articles in Condé Nast Traveler and all that all about all these sort of more exotic places and that Italy is kind of boring for American tourists. At least that's what the conversation on the ground is here. Well, I'm bored. Let's talk about AI. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, you, you know, you sent me this long article from Mark Andreessen where he basically lays out a very optimistic take on uh, the future of AI. So yeah, Andreessen had a a long article dispelling the fear and paranoia around AI and the free press and basically has a super bullish take on it. He says, I'm here to bring good news. AI will not destroy the world. And in fact, it may save it and basically makes the case that it's going to exponentially increase human intelligence and human intelligence has made everything better. So kind of bashing all the Luddites like me that are terrified of what's to come. But Ravi, what's your take? Is he too too optimistic? I think the short answer is yes. But I think he, I listened to an interview he did with Sam Harris, who kind of took the more skeptical take on almost all elements of AI. And they had a really awesome conversation about this. And Andreessen basically admits that he's kind of, you know, he's playing... Um, the sort of devil's advocate here. He truly is optimistic about it, but he almost believes that he should have, a, in his words, a religious fervor on behalf of AI because he feels like the forces against AI are bringing a religious fervor against it. But like putting his motivations aside, I do think it's interesting to interact with somebody who I think has a different tenor than a lot of the things written about AI, which tend to be negative, as we've pointed out here. He points out positives that a lot of our listeners would be familiar with. He talks about how AI tutors could fundamentally change the way students get their information, something we've talked a lot about. AI mentors, advisors, and therapists who help professionals be better, how AI can lead to productivity growth, it could lead to scientific breakthroughs. AI augmented artists could create a golden age of 
um, of works, whether it's literary works or, you know, music or movies. And he also even says that AI can improve warfare by helping us make better decisions and avoid more civilian casualties. So he's, he's bullish. And I think um, it's probably makes sense to kind of go through it line by line, Ricky, in terms of like the different, he basically organizes his essay around different fears around AI. Um, and I think the big one that he starts with is that he thinks that AI, uh, he, he, he interacts with the argument that AI will kill us, yes. uh, meaning like that AI will kind of develop a sentient, well, among other arguments that it could potentially develop almost a Terminator 2 style sentience and then decide to turn against us, or it doesn't even need that. It could just, because of our programming for it, it could misinterpret what its goals are and wind up doing things like developing catastrophic weapons, et cetera. We've never talked about this argument. Like what, what is your, how do you, how do you stack this up against other worries that you have about AI? I, I don't think I totally agree with him. I don't think it, it's, he says it's a category error to even think that it would want to kill us or that it has any wants or needs. And I don't think it needs to necessarily want to do it in order to potentially do it because if we created and programmed artificial intelligence in a way that we want to make it as efficient as possible, and that's the order that we give it, and the thing that is curbing its efficiency is the guardrails that humans are putting around it, then I think there is a world in which this could come to fruition. Like we are, we're, we're acting as, we're containing this, this force that I don't know. I, I, I'm not with him on this one. I don't think it has to be sentient or want to kill us in order to be programmed to potentially do something that at the very least, like subjugates human beings. And this was the, I think the most interesting part of the interaction between Andreessen and Sam Harris. So let me, let me read what Andreessen wrote about this and then uh, we'll play a clip of Harris reacting to this. So you talked about the category error. So after he basically lays out the category error point, he goes, quote, AI is not a living being that has been primed by billions of years of evolution to participate in the battle for the survival of the fittest as animals are and as we are. It is math code computers built by people, owned by people, used by people, controlled by people. The idea that it will at some point develop a mind of its own and decide that it has motivations that lead it to try to kill us is a superstitious hand wave. In short, AI doesn't want, it doesn't have goals, doesn't want to kill you because it's not alive. And AI is a machine. It's not going to come alive any more than your toaster will, end quote. So that's what he said. Uh, Harris basically reads that passage back to him and lays into it. I mean, I see where you're going there. I see wh why that may sound persuasive to people. But to my eye, that doesn't even make contact with the real concern about alignment. Mm. So let me just kind of spell out why I think that's the case. Sure. Because it seems to me that you're actually not taking intelligence seriously right now. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, some people assume that as intelligence scales, we're going to magically get ethics along with it, right? So the smarter you get, the nicer you get. And while, I mean, there's some you know, data points with respect to how humans behave, you know, you, and you just mentioned one in, in a few minutes ago, it's not strictly true even for humans. And even if it's true in the limit, right, it's not necessarily locally true. And more important, when you're looking across species, differences in intelligence are intrinsically dangerous for the stupider species. Yeah, so it need not be a matter of super intelligent machines spontaneously becoming hostile to us and wanting to kill us. It could just be that they begin doing things that are not in our well-being, right? Because they're not taking it into account as a primary concern, in the same way that, that we don't take the welfare of insects into account as a primary concern, right? So it's, it's very rare that I intend to kill an insect, but I regularly do things that annihilate them just because I'm not thinking about them. I think what essentially he's saying is like, Andreessen setting up this argument where he basically devotes a ton of his essay to saying, well, the AI isn't alive and it doesn't have goals and desires outside of what we give it. And I think Harris's point, I'm, I'm with you on this, like it doesn't have to have sentience or like, you know, be in any way recognizable to us as humans. It could just be super intelligent and indifferent to us in a certain kind of way and in carrying out even some of our own programs for it could wind up doing very, very dangerous things because it's moving so fast and moving beyond our ability to keep up with it. I agree. And not to mention, like, 
AI right now, we kind of are talking about a bunch of domestic applications of it, but theoretically a, an adverse nation could develop their own version of AI or just unwise, uncalculated people could develop something that turns against them and turns against other AI models. Like I think that there's, there's kind of a fallacy where we're thinking about it in our own applications and not the broader possibility. And like, yes, we can be as Americans cautious and have Senate committee hearings about it. But like what happens when, when a foreign nation takes over or when terrorists are using AI? And I, I, I'm definitely with Harris and less with Andreessen, even though I'm generally a fan of Andreessen's takes on things. But another thing that he also wanted to discuss in, in great detail was the concern about jobs being taken by AI, which he basically points to the history of every single invention that was going to take over everything. Every like copy machines are poisoned to writers and um, typewriters were licensed at a certain point in time. And everything that we take for granted as just a, a piece of technology that, you know, didn't take jobs. This is the moral panic that that happens and happens and happens. But I'm curious what your take is on this because I'm more in the John Haidt camp of saying there's a survivorship bias where we talk about these 100%. these these technologies that we do have, that we like, that we use, that we were all panicked about before. But we were rightfully panicked about other technologies that we got rid of. I agree with you. I, I love reading anything Andreessen says. He's a super smart guy. But he also has a tendency to erect straw men all over the place. And he, he writes this... As he he's basically responding to the claim that AI is going to take all of our jobs is the exact words that he uses. Of course, that's an absurd. Nobody's really arguing. I mean, some crazy people are arguing that. But I think what people are rightfully concerned about is that it will potentially decrease the amount of jobs available or more likely is that it changes the nature of employment in a very rapid way. That's going to have winners and losers. And you can combine this with this, the next sort of argument, set of arguments that he addresses, which is that it will lead to more inequality. Because I think this is inevitable, which is that, uh, or at least a part of it that's inevitable is that certain jobs are going to be eliminated. He acknowledges this. And there's always this hand waving that happens, which is like people will be like, oh, well, new jobs will be created. People can be trained up to do those. But the whole, this is like a politician trope. Like, oh, yeah, we're going to eliminate some jobs and we're going to train people up to take the new jobs. I'm like, that's like, that doesn't happen quickly. And sometimes the winners and losers reflect the starting positions, right? A good example is like a couple of weeks ago, I was in Mississippi and I was reading this book about the Mississippi Delta. What happened to the Mississippi Delta? Well, among other things, there was a rapid increase in uh, our technology at the turn of the century. And it, it allowed over the course of a few decades, fewer and fewer farmers to do more and more work and were, you know, to, in a sense, increase their productivity, which is something that Andreessen says is a positive, increased productivity is positive. Well, it's a positive if you're a consumer of those goods. But if you're a black sharecropper, or in the case of the Mississippi Delta, if there was a movement and some momentum towards former slaves and sharecroppers gaining small pieces of land. Well, what wound up happening was because of the access to this technology, there were fewer and fewer winners. And that technology wasn't doled out equally. It was doled out to people who were credit worthy, which was linked to your race. So the white farmers wound up consolidating and they wound up having fewer and fewer employees and they wound up pushing out black sharecroppers and entrenching inequality. And so, yes, like, Potentially, farm you know farmed goods got cheaper. Yes, productivity increased, but they were real losers, and they weren't just random losers. They were losers who were, uh, you know, they were in an unequal position because of horrible historical wrongs. And I think that's what people are worried about today, which is that the technology for AI is not evenly distributed. It's it's already being entrenched in the hands of yesterday's winners: Google, Microsoft, Meta. Right, and that those are people who took advantage of yesterday's inequality, and they're going to entrench tomorrow's inequality with the advantages they had yesterday. Yeah, although I feel like we're we're super negative here, so I will give Andreessen a point and say I do agree in terms of like AI will, in one way or another, whether we like it or not, reduce a lot of the day to day more administrative grueling work that most people do in most professions, and it will open up the time in a workday for a human being to do actually more productive things and less like busy work effectively. Like even in my own life, using AI to transcribe my, my 
interviews that I do with people for an article, like that takes 30 minutes out of the process of writing an article and I can write more as a result. And I actually am a much more productive person. And so I think it's, you know, in a way could be akin to like the invention of washing machines and dishwashers and the way that that actually really meaningfully liberated women and their ability to work in the 20th century. I think that there is going to be a positive upside, at least in a lot of professions in that sense. But I think that the the risk that AI poses is, you know, there's always going to be frictional unemployment when there's a technological advance, but the rapid clip at which it's just exploding and taking over life, like it's not, it's not the same as, you know, a, an innovation of, in shipping and then one company takes it on and some people lose their jobs as a result. And then another company adopts it and it's gradual. Like I think that th- we risk the fact that a ton of people are going to be out of jobs so quickly in lockstep that we're not going to be like, we, we won't even be able to rebuild in a way that um, is even recognizable to us. And so I, so I can see both sides on the, on the job debate, but I do think that he's right in terms of opening up more time for human beings to actually do the productive things that require the human touch. And in that way, it's akin to any other technological innovation in the past. Yeah, it could open up for sure and probably already is opening like more leisure time or more ability to focus on other things, which for sure was true of other technological, you know, gains that we've had. Like the, you know, Bill Gates writes about this as an essay, his his very invention of Microsoft Office and other productivity softwares of the nineties and early two thousands certainly should have led people to do to have more time to do the right things. Now, of course, there's the con- counterpoint that the invention of email has led to a lot of busy work, <laughs> you know, and like in a lot of back and forth and nonsense. Now, to give him credit, also, and and one area where I, I suspect you're sympathetic, also, is this metaphor that he introduces, uh, and I'm not sure if this was his metaphor, but he he quotes it of the Baptists and the bootleggers whenever there's technology, which I found really interesting and persuasive, because I wound up coming out similar to him on some of his solutions, in particular, his aversion to regulating in a way that Sam Altman seems to be suggesting, which is, you know, Sam Altman from OpenAI, which is basically a regulatory capture. Like, Andreessen argues that, you know, the Baptist and bootleggers point of prohibition, meaning whenever there's a moral panic, you have the Baptists who are the true believers who want to regulate, and those are people who are just doing it because they truly believe what's going on. And then you have the bootleggers who sense an opportunity to take a regulatory environment and make money. So in Prohibition, the Kennedys and all these other people, Al Capone, who made tons of money on the very fact that there was scarcity. And in this case, he's saying the bootleggers are essentially the open AI type of people. He doesn't call them out by name, but essentially saying, like, these are the people who stand to gain from at the big tech companies. And we should be careful not to grant people monopolies over this technology. And he says often, sometimes the Baptists and the bootleggers are the same people, which I, you know, it's kind of interesting to think about. But I sense you probably agree with this, right? Like, like we should be careful not to to overregulate in a way that creates winners and losers. Yeah, and certainly also in terms of regulation, his his real conclusion here is that the real risk is not pursuing AI with maximum force and regulating it here to the point that we cripple American innovation and China rises to dominance with a lack of similar regulation. And I think. Like he is right in that sense. I think that is probably the largest threat is that a non-domestic, non-friendly version of AI becomes the future. And I think that over-regulating could potentially produce that. So I am with him in that sense. I, I do think the most acute danger to us is China getting there first and and making a much more sinister version than anything that would have come out of this country. One thing I I always used to talk about with sort of political strategists that I continue to believe is an underrated force in American politics is the pace of change and the way that people deal with the pace of change. Like I think when when Brexit happened and Trump happened, you know, and you know both basically happened right around the same time. I think that part of what people were reacting to was the pace of change in society and a feeling of helplessness at the pace of change. And they they and when people feel helpless, they gravitate towards simple solutions and or they just want to just yell stop. And and I'm particularly sympathetic on the Brexit front where that I think was a very obvious sense that things were changing beyond people's control and they had a very discreet way to stop it by saying, all right, 
like I'm going to take back control, which was the motto of Brexit. My sense is if this if this AI stuff plays out the way it seems inevitable, it's only going to accelerate some of the un- destabilizing politics that we've seen over the past decade plus, which is people, when there are winners and losers like this and things are changing in a way that people don't understand, the very people who create it don't understand it, then this is going to give rise to simple stories. Sometimes those simple stories are actually going to be correct. Sometimes they're going to be charlatans and they're going to be dangerous stories told. So I think like the, this will increase the rise of populism, both on the left and the right. It will increase the amount of instability. And that's a world that to me is very scary. I agree. I think 24 will be the last election cycle in which people are not creating narratives around AI. Like, I don't think it'll be too relevant to this time around, but by 2028, I mean, I think it's so vast and expansive that you can pull out, like, it's so hard to wrap your brain around even this conversation of what are we talking about AI killing us? And like, what does that even mean? It's like, you can create any narrative that you want to and to achieve any political end out of all the different iterations and, and facets of AI, 100%. I do think it'll be relevant in this one because you're going to have these people who inevitably in this election cycle, I'm surprised Trump hasn't done this already with all the audio recordings that have come out around him, is that you're going to have people with the previous November surprise saying, hey, this was a, yeah. a, this was generative AI, yeah. right? And maybe they'll be right sometimes, but certainly like- if I'm if it's November second and the election is November fourth and I'm like some politician who's caught on tape doing something I don't like and I'm totally immoral, I'm just gonna be like that's generative AI. Yeah, although I don't know, I think I think our octogenarian uh, politicians will be tacking away from having to actually discuss this topic as much as possible. Breaking news, Ricky. The Federal Trade Commission is has announced that they're investigating ChatGPT maker OpenAI to understand if the company has violated consumer protection laws. In their charges, you know, they, this this document called the CID, which basically lays out what they're looking to investigate. They named a couple of different things, but one of the things that they mentioned here is they're looking into how OpenAI has used uh, third parties, has allowed third parties to access the large language models that it uses to basically train its AI and other people's AI, which is fascinating because this dovetails with uh, some legal cases that are making their way through our courts. Yeah, there's a new class action lawsuit that the kind of headliner of is Sarah Silverman, of all people, um, along with two novelists, Richard Catedry and Christopher Golden, who are suing Meta and OpenAI, which is the creator of ChatGPT in San Francisco federal court for um, what they allege is that they use their content from their copyrighted books to train AI without permission, that they were getting it through third-party sources and um, effectively infringing on their intellectual property in the process. And um, they're representing their, you know, it's a class action suit for authors at large. Um, and it's based on a leak from Meta that demonstrates that this must have, that, that this might have been the case and how Meta um, trained their AI. But the, one of the things that they're saying is basically you can ask the AI to summarize these books. And it's not perfect what it spits out, but it definitely demonstrates that it has inside knowledge into what the books say effectively. So I don't know. Do you think that this has legal legs considering it still gets the stuff somewhat wrong? I think the Warhol case that the Supreme Court just decided, it was a photographer who had taken a photo, Warhol had, Andy Warhol had previously used that photo in some of his work. I think a lot of people were were looking at that case to say, all right, where the Supreme Court goes in that case is going to help determine uh, the limits of what what is uh, legally called fair use, which allows copyrighted work to be used without the owner's permission for a few different purposes, which include criticism and satire, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research, right? So for example, when we played Sam Harris's clip earlier in this podcast, that was fair use because it's news reporting and commentary, right? And the problem that everybody's encountering here is twofold. One is fair use has always been a bit squishy, and two is it's often applied to evolving technologies that, of course, the Supreme Court has not 
weighed in on and that our laws weren't designed to address. And a good example of this was when Google successfully defended itself against a lawsuit um, arguing that they uh, transformatively used uh, text from books uh, that they were scraping for their search engine. They won that case. So a lot of people were saying, all right, like the existing case law is you know, is favorable to people like OpenAI and some of these other technologies, but the Supreme Court decision was a 7-2 uh, in favor of the photographer, which basically signals in a different context, but one that a lot of people think is analogous, that this Supreme Court might not be very bullish on fair use. And if that's the case, then I, this could be more of a toss-up than people realize. I mean, one thing about this that just does kind of confuse me is I don't really see where the actual harm is to like Sarah Silverman, for example, if her book was used to train AI. I really, I can't come up with the test case of how this is going to damage her business prospects or how this, I, I mean, I, I, the one that I can see much more is this similar, but so slightly different lawsuit against Dolly, which is the visual art art generated AI that was brought by a group of artists that said that they used they trained it with their work and you know in my view you can ask Dolly to create something in the in the style of whatever artist you like and like that to me is creating something that is analogous to the original versus like AI is not writing a Sarah Silverman book or writing the follow up to her book and so to me I think there is a meaningful difference there because like I could just print out a poster and put it on my wall of something in the style of some living artist and they don't make any money as a result. And that actually is meaningfully harming their business prospects. Yeah. I think like the, the challenge here is that there are many uses, right? It, one data set, many uses. So the question is, will courts rule that certain uses are problematic or that the entire data set is problematic, right? I think those are the, the two options really left. I, I think like the idea that the court isn't going to have any opinion whatsoever is highly unlikely. So I think the question is, how sweeping will they be? And my sense is, although this is a court that is fairly libertarian, they're also fairly old. <laughs> and I do think a lot of people, like, and old people tend to want to, like, put technology back in its box sometimes. And it's very ageist of you, Ron. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think like this is I just a put every technology back in boxes and I'm not old. This is a prediction, but I do think I do think they're gonna have something to say about this. And I do think they should, because I think although like the the versions of it today are kind of crude, even today you could plug in, hey, right, I've seen so many of these things on the internet. Right, like Write blank in the style of blank. And sometimes it's stupid and really off, but depending on how much blank has written Shakespeare or whatever, it gets closer and closer and closer. And so if you think about the, the 100x quality version of this, which at the rate that technology is moving, we could imagine, then if you're an artist who's spent your entire life developing a, a particular voice in writing or a particular, you know, like your Pharrell or something, and you have a particular, like, like way of thinking about music and a sound, right? That you have spent your whole life cultivating or an artist that has a visual identity, right? Or Sarah Silverman, like if we're giving her credit, I don't know a lot about her humor, but let's pretend that she has like a very particular way of delivering jokes like Mitch Hedberg used to have with his one-liners. Then you're basically taking away somebody's entire like artistic identity in a way. And that's where I think it gets tricky. And where I think we should err on the side of stopping things. Or at least, well, you'll never totally stop it. You could just say people have to opt in if they want to be part of a data set and you should pay them to use their work as part of a data set. I just don't know how you you contain that. Like clips of, of her are going to still be on the internet for free use or regurgitated somewhere else. And I feel like these these data sets are so vast and I don't know how you can really enforce this to be completely honest. Like, I think it's just going to totally kneecap training these models. To me, it's less about the training and more about the output. I, I do think you can contain it though. You think about, and actually you could use AI to contain it ironically, right? Like for instance, when I do a, my show on Midas, we don't put up anything 
that is like an M- like we wanted to use an NBC clip from West Wing recently, and we didn't do that because YouTube will flag it immediately, right? AI is really good at this, so it's like you you could immediately say like I'm Sarah Silverman, I and you know they're very good at doing this. Say I'm going to register every video, every stand up special I've done, and everything I've written with the yada yada. Uh, in the, in the case of music, it's ASCAP is the, is the group that you register your music with and that will be, and they will there when you're creating a data set, you have to run it through ASCAP's database using whatever tool, AI tool they use to find it. And it will flag anything that's, that's being used without permission. And I think they could do it. I also think though, that there, that also runs into the issue of like, you have to have a remarkable amount of privilege and standing to be able to afford to go through that whole process. And what about the up and coming person who's, who's just writing on their own blog that's in the internet and not copyrighted. And I think that this will kind of draw up the ladder in a certain way. If we were to protect people who could afford to go through that whole process. But that's why I think associations really help. Right. So like I'm in the process of joining the writers guild of America, but even before I joined the writers guild, I can register my scripts that I write with the Writers Guild and they would presumably be the entity that would handle that and that like you pay your dues as a writer, right, to the Writers Guild and they run that whole process. That's certainly what happens in the music industry. And I do think, and then there's also financial incentives, right? And this is the dark side of it all. Like if you've ever used a photo without permission, which I've been in the middle of um, at Arena, when we had a photo on our website, this is a crazy story. There's a photo on our website of Arena from Time Magazine of a photo Time Magazine took of me when they did a profile in Arena. And they sent us a letter charging us $750 for the use of my own photo because they took the photo. Uh, and we had to take it down and like negotiate. Well, this is exactly what I'm talking about, though. Like, time time can afford to pay lawyers to do something as stupid as that, but like the the random kid who takes a picture of you somewhere and then you end up reusing it, who just has like who's a a, want, a wannabe photographer with 50 followers on Instagram, that's they're not going to have the resources to fight this. Like, I do think that there is there is going to be if we bring copyright in in this way, there's going to be a disproportionate benefit to already established people and people who are up and coming and and trying to get their work or their creative output in as many places as possible and saturating the internet with it or putting it on TikTok or whatever are not going to have the same resources to to fight this. But then you can if you can't help everybody, you don't help no one, right? I don't think that that's our world, right? And there there are efficient ways that people can register their work. Like a good example is like, like anybody, for instance, can register this script with the, the Writers Guild of America. And there's no reason why that can't be. Uh, and that it, it is totally free from what I remember. If it's not free, it's like a couple dollars. And I do think that like every industry can have an equivalent of that. I just, what, how is Sarah Silverman harmed in this? In her defense, we don't know. Part of what they're guarding against is like, the uncertainty over how this stuff is being used. But I think like, let's pretend I, I, I want to both give her credit as a comedian and the technology's credit for what it either cur- currently can do or could potentially do, which is she could be harmed because let's say she has a distinct joke writing style. This could generate. No, but we're talking about her book though. Oh, well let's pretend that she has a distinct storytelling style. Like, like, and she like worked really hard to be a great writer and or her like co-writer, ghostwriter, and that this mimics that style, right? Like, then we start to get into like an area where artistic identity is trampled on. It's like the equivalent of what you said around images, right? Like if we take seriously that they're good and bad writers with unique personalities and they're writing. I think with a post, like I'm going to print out a poster and do it myself in the style of this artist who I might have bought it off their Etsy shop otherwise, right? Like that takes money away from that person. Is there a world where we say, oh, I don't need to buy Sarah Silverman's next book. I'm just going to ask ChatGPT to write a sequel to it in her style. Like it's not going to, I just don't see that as the same thing. I don't know. I do think that there's a difference between visual art and writing somehow. I could think about it as like, all right, take somebody who has like a distinct writing style 
like a Hemingway or something, right? And let's just mm-hmm. pretend that this this thing is so awesome, you know, let's, let's go five years into the future, that it could basically take my novel and I could generate it through this thing and it could it could basically like make it so that if you didn't know Hemingway didn't write my story, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference in terms of quality between what I've written and what he's written. And it's not accidental. I'm basically using the techniques and everything that he's used and all the patterns that he has used in his many books to improve and craft my book, right? Then you're starting to take his identity away. And let's pretend he's a living person like Stephen King who writes a book a year, right? Then I think you start to get into some trouble or like the, the, the storytelling part of it, right? Like let's say you have somebody who's a genius for like the particular ways in which they um, – they reveal a thriller like M. Night Shyamalan or something, right? And you basically take all of his scripts and you run it through AI. And now I've got like a C plus story right now with like a reveal and I run it through that. And it's like, well, you know, based on all of our like reading of M. Night Shyamalan, you can actually like have a much better ending to this story and much better structure to this. My sense is in creative endeavors that this might, that it will weed out people who do not have meaningful original content in the end. And if you can do like, I think AI is really good at mashing together everything that's out there and creating an aggregate of it. But if you can do something that's provocative and the next thing, or you have that original idea and that like spark and inclination that an AI cannot generate, I think those sort of creatives are going to be celebrated in the end. Like I think about this in the journalistic sense all the time, obviously, because that's my field. But like the AI will never come up with a story idea and find the sources, but the AI will absolutely write the regurgitated copy copy article because, you know, the journal had this and let's spin off that, you know? And I think I think it'll incentivize originality. And I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think your particular example of having to interview sources and things like that for a story for sure is going to be a lot harder for AI to come from. I do think people who work squarely in the world of fiction and style, right? Like, let's say you're somebody who's like an opinion writer who, um, you know, wants to like up your style game or you're a... I think particularly the world I think about a lot is is fiction writing and screenwriting. I don't think the technology is there yet. I think it's clunky and a bit like um, uh, formulaic, but I do think it's heading in a direction that's scaring a lot of people. And I don't take me, don't take my word for granted. The writer's guild believes this too. They're striking right now over this among other issues. So I think the, the fear is there. I do think, th- and, and, and I, I do this writing class every Tuesday night um, that Neil Strauss runs, um, who's written so many, he's, I think his book right now is New York Times number one bestseller, The Creative Act with Rick Rubin. Like, it is like a big topic of discussion in this group is that there is this sense amongst this group of writers that we have this limited period of time to get as much out as possible before uh, this sort of frauds wind up showing up on the scene and generating tons of content in ways that make it really hard to distinguish who's doing it originally or who's not. I don't think we're there today yet, but I think like given that we didn't, we, we weren't, we didn't even, there was no chat GPT a year ago when we we're talking about this. And now it's like such a dominant part of the conversation it means that this stuff is moving fast. My final piece of, of hope that I hold out is like, you can, we, like we know the human brain prefers music that's played with a little bit of like human idiosyncrasies in there and and inaccuracies and imperfections over a computer generated theoretically perfect tune and melody because we we can feel intuitively that human touch and i think that there is truth to that in pretty much every creative endeavor and i think it might kind of refine our tastes to more more human more real more raw stuff and less kind of average or same old two really awesome discussions i think uh i'll just briefly mention these two articles we were planning to have longer discussions with but i think we could save the sort of longer discussions for future episodes but you know one area that's near and dear to my heart which is this article written by liana wen who is the former baltimore health commissioner and professor of public health the worst covid takes ever by the way oh i didn't know that so i'm gonna just 
take at face value what she wrote here. Um, she wrote about AI, the AI revolution in healthcare is already here. Uh, and it's a fascinating article. We'll link to it in the show notes. And basically, she interviews um, a leader from the Mayo Clinic, which I didn't realize this, has 160 AI algorithms in cardiology, neurology, radiology, and other specialties. And she basically, uh, Leanna publishes her interview with this person and all about how whether it's type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes care uh, or uh, using predictive AI to diagnose colon cancer and how much more effective AI already is in that, like basically distinguishing generative AI, which is what we were just talking about from predictive AI um, and saying that predictive AI is already making a huge difference in medicine. It's going to completely upend medicine as we know it. Uh, fascinating article. I don't know if you have any quick takes on it. I know we don't have time for like a longer discussion. Yeah, I'm totally bullish on this. I think that this is certainly an application that AI, I mean, I really only see upsides to, and it seems to be a really good tool working alongside doctors. Um, the the colon cancer example that you bring up, I mean, it increased the, or it decreased the miss rate of um, detection it, from 32% uh, doctors would miss something that was actually there and and flagging cancer to 15% already. Like I'm totally bullish on this. I think this pretty much only has upsides for humanity and for healthcare. And I think there will always be a role for a human doctor, but AI can make them way more efficient and just way better. Yeah, I think it's the radiologists who have to be the most paranoid here because I think their their job is is more pattern recognition than a lot of other fields. And I have a friend of mine who's a radiologist who's basically been planning out over the past year his exit from radiology as a field because he feels that it's that change is coming imminently. I I suspect there will always be a role for physicians, just the way that we we think about expertise in this society. And you don't want to you don't want to. I, I would not personally want to have a diagnosis of cancer without a radiologist confirming it, even if there's a ton of uh, technology involved in it. Uh, I think the diabetes case is interesting because I actually advise a company right now that started as a diabetes company and has moved into a very people-intensive plan of care model that essentially uh, uses non-AI technology to create personalized plans for very hard medical cases and has had really good results, including with diabetics. And they are very, very cognizant of their of the fact that they have got to adapt and, uh, and adopt AI quickly or they're going to be dinosaurs. And it's a very quick process. And this gets to like the winners and losers. If they don't get there fast, they will certainly be replaced. And one other article we want to briefly touch on that will be in the show notes as well um, is an Atlantic piece reacting to the fact that Google is pivoting to AI with uh, what they're calling the search generative experience, which effectively, I would say the way I, I tried it, and it's like kind of akin to the little knowledge uh panels on the side of search results where if you Google a notable person, it'll kind of aggregate a little bio of them based on what's out there in the internet. But it's for basically anything. And, you know, I just because I'm here today, I looked up what to do in Nantucket. And rather than click on a link, Google at the very top of the page gave me a list of like 10 things based on what's out on the internet. So I would theoretically never need to leave Google, which is very concerning to people who depend on website traffic. Um, And, you know, getting clicks from Google as the gatekeeper to their website because there's a world in which you don't need to leave Google at all, period. And this one really freaks me out because if that were to become like a reality and an actual future, I think the potential for bias is terrifying. I have a hard time seeing the use case like eviscerating the curation that I think so much of us depend upon, right? So for example... I could ask this technology for recommendations on where to eat tonight in Italy. But I also know of certain websites that I really like. They have voice, they have personality, there there are people behind it that I really trust, right? And yes, I could imagine this technology getting really, really good at aggregating all of those things, but I'm not sure it would ever replace the desire to be like, all right, Condé Nast Traveler, I really love their people. I love the aesthetic of it and all. I love the experience. You know what I'm saying? Like I I think like I'm not sure this is gonna kill uh written web content in the way that they're describing. And I also But would you ever have found those websites if theoretically 
this this technology had been around and you never needed to click around to even land on them in the first place? The one thing I'll mention like that's an analogous situation is Instagram, right? Whereas like Instagram isn't search, but I discovered new things on Instagram and a lot of times travel content. Uh, either serendipitously because friends have reposted it or because of the for you or whatever they call it algorithm there, which for sure could be informed by AI, right? And it's the same kind of concern, but it's a, it's a little bit different of a problem than just the summary problem, right? Because still in that case, I'm still clicking through to find the other person to follow them, right? Or I'm seeing their actual generated content. I think they would have to be, the, the user interface would have to be really awesome for me to like just not look at Condé Nast Traveler or the right person's Instagram page because it's like a fun and engaging way to learn things because you get the sense of people's personalities. I'll give you a different example, which is where I really have more concern is in the political realm, like or even just qualifying people and their ideas for you. And one thing that I did not like is that I asked for, you know, summaries of different politicians and stuff just for fun. And just for example, I'm not taking a stance on his stances on on the Uh-oh. issue of vaccines. But if you ask it to who, what, what does Robert F. Kennedy Jr. believe? It will say, this is what I got at the top. Robert Francis Kennedy Jr., also known by his initial, initials RFK Jr., is an American environmental lawyer and author. He has promoted anti-vaccine propaganda and public health-related conspiracy theories. I don't like the use of the word propaganda there because that seems like a complete, like, I just want to know what, what are the theories and what what did he say? And I will make up my own mind. But this to me feels like you could theoretically get Google's pre-chewed, Google approved position on, on contentious issues that becomes what the internet's singular voice is. And I just think that that is. But that's what I think is its limitation. You know, I think like what you just described is why it would have to meaningfully adapt for it to be useful. Right. Because like if you take what you just did or you take the conversation on this very podcast two three episodes ago with Isaac from Tangle or Isaac's piece in Tangle, for example, right? Like Isaac will continue to have a role in our ecosystem as long as Google search looks like that. Because theoretically, Google could do what Isaac does and say, here's what the different positions from prominent left-wing publications are. Here's what the positions of right-wing publications, and here's what I think. Uh, That's basically what Tangle does. That machine is so far from being able to do that, that I'm not that concerned, at least in the near term, that it's going to replace the ability of people to do that. Because like, yes, you could find all sorts of places like Wikipedia that like claim to be some kind of objective source. But I think a lot of people don't stop at the water's edge. They want to go find the people that they trust for better or worse on these things. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached The Lost Debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the town. Well, Ravi, it seems that we have a voicemail from Nadine in New Mexico. Uh, Regarding affirmative action in higher education, I think that a big part of the conversation is not being addressed, and that is inequality in K through 12 education. Um, The fact that we are assuming that those in disadvantaged schools, uh, disadvantaged uh, backgrounds, need uh, a leg up academically to get into the higher education. Either one, it skirts around the fact that our K through 12 is not equal across this country. And if you are naive and thinking that it is equal across this country, then the only other conclusion can be that kids cannot compete on their own. The best approach needs to be equality uh, in education in the lower grades. That goes for if they're going to college. It also goes for trade schools and just life. Better education and guidance in post-secondary uh, education in terms of is it best to go to university or a trade school or what is their interest, that needs to be the focus of our conversation, a little bit uh, less than race uh, and less than income inequality. 
I appreciate uh, your conversations. It gets me thinking. And uh, keep on doing what y'all do. Thank you. Well, thank you, Nadine. We obviously agree on the need to focus as much as possible on K-12. It's a huge focus of us as a media company. And I think the question inevitably is, well, how do we bring about that equality is just a constant conversation that we're having. And it's so hard. It's hard politically, you know, because there are winners and losers in the system right now. And whenever winners and losers, they become entrenched. And I think that is a bipartisan entrenchment, right? Like the people who live in the right neighborhoods are going to be very protective of that school, right? The people who, um, you know, get the right tax breaks to send their kid to the right place or who benefit from the neighborhood school versus the school of choice or whatever. Like, I think, um, and then you have like centuries of racial and economic inequality playing out in a country that ties the quality of your school to what your zip code is. I think it's so deep and entrenched that I often just wonder, like, how do you even just take the first step to make the system better? I feel like there's a case to be made that this is akin to when they first approved affirmative action and said something along the lines of like this, this, we hope that this will only need to be in place for the next 25 years while we make progress towards better racial equality. And it it had an expiry date on it in its initial um, intent. And I think that we can kind of draw a line in the sand if we were to put an economic needs-based affirmative action in into place and say, you know, we don't want this to be always the future. We don't want your class to be a proxy for how much opportunity or how good of an education you have going forward. And let's work to this goal to making K to 12 education more equitable. And hopefully a needs-based affirmative action sort of thing is something that we can phase out because we're getting closer to that, that goal in the end. So um, I think it's a a meaningful point and certainly um, my motivation in implementing a, um, a, a needs-based affirmative action model is a reaction to the reality that there are so many inequities in K-12. Yeah, and just to clarify one thing, the case you're referring to, I think, was one of the later affirmative action cases. I think it was Gruder, which was roughly the 20 to 25 years ago case. Because I think Baki was the first true affirmative action case, which was yeah. in the late 70s. But same same principle applies, right? So O'Connor in that case, I think that's who it was. I think it was O'Connor. It was basically saying, like, we can't continue this forever. I think what a skeptic of O'Connor would say, and people have said back as well, presumably racial inequality would be wiped out within 20 years if that's true. And although I'm skeptical of affirmative action as played out, I do think I still believe that the racial inequality exists and therefore like, we still need tools to solve it. I just think that the way affirmative action is being used per our conversation with Colin Berg isn't getting at the root problem, um, which I guess is what Nadine is saying also. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, Make sure to get out there and leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Share it with friends. Send in voicemails, 321-200-0570. We will be back next week when I'll be stateside. Uh, New episodes drop roughly every Tuesday and Thursday. Thank you very much, everybody.